You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. You're back listening to Three Makes Baby podcast. And this is a, I know I say this a lot, but this really is a super special episode. I have uh, five parents on the phone with me, and they are all parents to donor-conceived children, ranging in ages from newborn-ish to uh, 15 years old. So it's really, really exciting to be able to talk to this many parents at the same time. And another thing that makes this very special is that we are actually going to be talking about some of the more controversial topics surrounding donor conception. And I thought it was really important for us to talk about it because, you know, one, it's hard to talk about. Two, it's really, um, it can be misunderstood, especially when we post just, you know, static posts on social media or um, make just comments in isolation that are maybe taken out of context. I think a lot of confusion and misunderstandings can occur. And so I thought it would be great to have this, this really unplanned, very natural flowing conversation. Today's conversation will be about the topics of anonymity, um, of the discrepancy between sperm and egg donation, and also the concern that parents and adults that are donor-conceived have that they may someday unknowingly date a half-sibling, which is rare but possible within the anonymity model. In our last podcast, we wrapped up the conversation about cost, the cost of egg and sperm. But I know, Vince, you wanted to share uh, one more thing before we move on. I just wanted to put a plug in for a book I really enjoyed by Renee Ameling. She's a researcher in California. And a few years back, she wrote a book called Sex Cells, with a C, clever pun, Sex Cells, the Medical Market for Eggs and Sperm. And she really addresses sort of through a feminist lens why these gametes are valued differently and whether it really holds up that, uh, you know, the, the biological nature of the donation should value them differently and what that means. But it's a fantastic summary of what's involved in modern gamete donation. And I know you often run into folks who joke like, oh, oh you know, guy went into a corner and looked at a magazine and, you know, got paid for his effort kind of thing. And and she kind of really shows what it, what's involved in, in both gametes being donated. So I just want to chip that in there as a book recommendation. And then I had wanted to ask Becky, um, you know, what her experience was in terms of, you know, uh, sometimes we look up in Canada, we look up to UK practice. We think sometimes that, you know, the UK has really kind of got the social elements of, of things nailed down. And we know, we're aware that there's a, a national gamete bank. Um, I think it's called Seed now, uh, or at least an organization that tries to encourage altruistic donation and, and um, you know, and, and that sperm donors are no longer anonymous in the UK. But with your experience with egg donors, et cetera, how commercial was that for you? Because here in Canada, while we have certain ideals, we, we really, it's a commercial operation. And there are agencies that broker egg donors and surrogates, and we basically have to buy our sperm from the states. And there's no public capacity that's set up to provide that as a social good. And so I, I guess I was really curious from Becky, you know, how commercial was your experience going through this? Yeah, so um, 
so although I am based in the UK, um, I think just going back to our story, we didn't actually um, use a donor from the UK. Um, so five years ago when we went um, for egg donation, we chose to use a clinic in uh, the Czech Republic. Um, so actually I don't have the personal experience um, of the UK. Um, we were on a waiting list for quite a long time in the UK before making that decision. So it was interesting what you were saying around um, the recruitment of donors um, and also whether or not they're getting the same numbers of donors um, with that different perspective from the UK. Um, so, yeah, I can't really give much in terms of a personal experience, um, but kind of my own experience was that the, the waiting time was was significant. Um, but yeah I hear some great things coming from um, some clinics in particular um, who have a very altruistic approach um, but yeah I don't know the level of detail to kind of go further beyond that. I want to get Gail's feedback on Australia uh, just get the back to the ind individual or the first question which is Gail what how is it in Australia you mentioned that eggs cannot be sold and sperm cannot be sold so um, talk a little bit about that in, can you give us just a little brief background about Australia? Um, well, an, anonymity was made illegal several years ago. Um, but I think part of the problem here is that people um, are able to import sperm from foreign countries. Okay. And given that there is discussion around having a national bank, uh, which I think would be fantastic and it would be altruistic donation, of course, because then the monitoring and the data collection is also made much better, uh, improved. And But part of the problem as well is that people also travel to foreign countries for egg donors because they are also in short supply. Whether they're in short supply or whether it's just the fertility industry is not investing any of their hard-earned cash in recruiting um, is, a, is a big question that I have. Um, I, think it, I think it's really easy for the fertility industry to just allow people to go overseas to do these things so they don't have to worry about the recruitment, you know, the financial investment in maintaining this pool of donors, the screening and so forth. Um, so I'm a little bit sceptical about that. Um, and I think yeah. this is this stance about the commodification of children is really driven by the industry. I've also read that book, um, Renee Umling, I thought it was really fascinating about the way in which the industry primes the men and the women and the men are seen as doing a job. Make sure you turn up regularly a couple of times or three times a week. Make sure that your sperm is going to pass muster. Whereas, you know, the women who are donating their eggs are seen as this is a gift that you're providing which I found absolutely fascinating. And of course that then, if there's no counselling involved, <clears throat> these donors, then, then that's driving, you know, these beliefs around what, what it is they're actually doing, these donors. And if you, you only have to go on to, for Australians, I mean, you only have to go onto these international websites and you can see these little marketing jigs that they're putting on there for both, for both egg donors and sperm donors. And it's about, there's, there's a lot of terminology around their bank accounts. You know, this, this can set you up for 
and various elements of your life financially. On the egg donor sites, there are images of women driving lovely cars, you know, these potential donors driving a nice car and so forth. So I think the industry is driving this narrative for people around the commodification of our children. And it's a hard thing to then come back to and, and, um, and the, change that. Yeah, and so you're right, the counselling, both the do donors and the parents, um, about the topics and language to use and just having this understanding of, of this topic and how you can start from a young age to, um, you know, make sure you're making it clear to your child um, that they're, they're not a commodity. And it, of course, you wouldn't use that language. There's ways that, you know, it comes up. Um, I, I think I'd, I just want to recognize as well, I think the um, kind of what you can't take away from this is the, the emotional um, kind of impact at the time when you, you're trying for a baby as well. And, and I think the lack of education that's out there, and I'll be honest, there is so much more I know now than I did back then. Um, that does lead people to to make decisions based around monetary value and it's not because we don't value the children that we're having it's because there is a significant impact on on mental health and finances emotions day-to-day -day life um pretty much everything i mean from my own personal experience which did drive certain decisions um that led to us choosing to use a donor from the czech republic which which is anonymous and and obviously there are implications with that um, that we now recognize and what we're going to do our best to support our, our girls with but um but yeah i think it was interesting what gail said about could more be done by clinics to recruit more donors um I think that's that's a, a big question for clinics actually and i don't know how hard the uk clinics work to recruit donors um i'm not sure but yeah it's, it's a really really interesting conversation yeah go ahead vince i think what gail and becky described is really the canadian experience too um uh, although in canada it has not been made illegal to give anonymous donations like in the uk and australia um, what we find is that in practice, what public institutions do exist really aren't able to deliver, as Becky has just described. And so there's constant pressure from the industry to re-commercialize these activities. And that in practice, most people are, you know, going somewhere else for commercial. I mean, I wish we lived in a world where it worked for the public good in sort of this idealistic way. But it seems like there's still some distance to go, uh, even in more progressive jurisdictions on this. Okay, thanks for that. Um, I'm gonna move on now to the second topic that I wanna bring up, and that is this theme that I hear from donor-conceived individuals that speak to me both privately and that I've seen on you know public forums that um, they believe that their parents' story, their parents' infertility story has taken precedent precedence over their own story and their needs um, to work through their story. So it becomes sometimes like almost like a comparison. And I think there can be a battle between donor-conceived adults and donor-conceived or parents who have used a donor about who has experienced more brokenness or more pain or you know, comparing the stories or not comparing the stories. And so do you have any thoughts on this? 
and you know how we can reconcile this as this debate goes on between the two the two parties of those adults that have been donor conceived and you know maybe found out later in life or maybe just want to work through some of their challenges around it and the parents who have experienced their own loss and um, grief over the years on their way to have a child. Okay, so I know this is a hard one. I know. Anyone? Sarah? Do you want to? As I think about it. Um, it's t- Well, so I guess I'm being hesitant because I, I by no means want to suggest I'm minimizing that experience at all. Um, I, I come from the belief that we are all going to be walking through pain to get to something. Um, it doesn't, I'm not certainly not saying it's always the greatest thing, but we're all, you know, we, we, we walk through our pain and that is what I did, you know, walking through my, my infertility. Um, what I will, you know, what I will do again, should I choose to, um, you know, you, um, have another, go through another transfer process. Um, and I, I just, I believe it's just, it's a part of our, it's a part of our human experience to be walking through pain and getting to the, to another part of our story. And so what I mean by, I don't mean to minimize that that would be, that that could be the next phase is that, you know, that my son then has, would have to walk through pain. It's that I feel like it's, it's not my job to stop him from walking through that pain. It's my job to say, I'm going to stand next to you and we're going to walk, you, you lead, but we're going to, we're going to walk through that just as I would with any, yeah. any amount of anything that's going to cause pain for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a story. It can mirror each other in a lot of ways, the infertility, genetic loss, and then the genetic loss the child feels. Um, Go ahead, Becky. Yeah. I'm curious as to what you. Yeah. This is something that I feel quite strongly about that um, it absolutely shouldn't be a comparison. So we could, we should never say, well, well, you know how hard it was for me to have you (laughs) or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the infertility story does become their story as they grow up. I think it, it leads in, so it's a family story and then it becomes their story as they kind of find their identity and as they grow. Um, I think we as parents can have some influence on how that story is told in terms of how we feel about it. So how we've dealt with our feelings. So I try very much, um, i kind of have been through a process of grief and acceptance and I talk about our story with pride now and and there's no element of shame whereas I can see in some circumstances where things have been kept a secret or something hasn't been shared with them and the parents are maybe still struggling with feelings of shame that that can then feed into the to their story and I think for me it's important to recognize that they might feel genetic loss and not dismiss it um be open to listening to them and i really resonated with you talking about um i think it was a few months ago um the mirroring of genetic loss and how i know how it feels personally to not have that genetic link and i felt grief around that and and loss and and yet i believe that that should put me in a better position to understand how they might feel about potentially not having a genetic link that they might want to know more about so so yeah I think 
there's influence we can have on that depending on how we kind of frame the story with how we feel about it and how we talk to them and how open we are yeah Sarah didn't you say something along those lines in your podcast episode where you said you grieve the loss of at first you were grieving the loss of your son not being in not of you not being in your son something like that was that you yeah I was you saying that, that you yeah. say that again yeah yeah well, um so the, the question had been posed, you had, you had posed the question, uh, how was I, how had that, how had the grief sort of transformed? I'm, I'm, I don't mean to butcher your words, but it was something along, the, along those lines. And at the time, so he's 10 months now, was, he was four months when, when you and I had recorded that podcast. And I had, it sort of had transitioned for me that I was at that point then grieving that I didn't have his genetics, <laughs> that, that there was this other separation. The story had now become, had almost shifted. It's become his story. It sort of started, you know, started off as, as Becky had said, it's become a family story. And so now here he is and I'm watching him grow and recognizing that I am, it's not, it's no longer that he doesn't have mine. It's that I don't have his, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes, I thought it was so beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, yeah, isn't it? That's, yeah, I think that's just so beautiful. And it just shows you how, to me, it is mirrored. And I know that this, sometimes it's hard, maybe hard when we're grieving to see the connection because we're going through our own pain. So being able to see our parents' pain when we're feeling pain is pretty difficult, let's be honest. I mean, when you're in the midst of your own you know, anger or sadness or you're, it's consuming. And so I think sometimes when we can get past that and start to see the connections in our shared experiences, that those become, that the, that the similarities become more important than the differences. But acknowledging the differences is a part of the healing process. It is a part of having your own unique perspective of your own unique painful story, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, and so there may be a period of time where, you know, a child might, you know, go, that, that, yeah, this has nothing to do with me. Your story is not my, and that's okay. Cause you almost have to separate it fr from it in order to fully understand it. So, um, yes, go ahead, Vince. You know, when we talk about sort of this reversal of the story, and I really do see ourselves uh, as stewards of their story. It was always their story. It wasn't my story to deny them. And, you know, sooner or later, or rather gradually as they grow, they take more and more ownership of that story. And while I can certainly see that, that it's possible uh, that donor-conceived people find themselves, it's not possible, it happens, that they find themselves in families that are not very sympathetic to their expression of genetic loss. It's funny when you, you and, and, uh, um, and Sarah talk about reversal because I, I'm kind of at a point now where, you know, this was such a big deal for us. And we were so concerned to do it in what we thought was a right way and a way that we thought respected them and would set them up the best for success and all of that. And my kids are completely uninterested. And, I, you know, I, my private theory is that there's really just no sense of mystery. If you ask my 15, 13 or nine year old when they learned they were donor conceived, they just shrug like they have no idea. They've been going to support group meetings their whole lives. And, you know, it's just a casual conversation comes up every now and then. Um, and so I don't know if reducing the sense of mystery or secrecy around it also reduces uh, some of that drive to discover. Um, those two are not necessarily correlated. Uh, but now we run the risk of me being like, well, don't you want to know? 
you know, don't you want to find out? Like, don't you want to discover the identity? Because I'm curious, right? And I have to be uh, in a piece and in a position where, you know, I'm not pushing and driving that conversation. Yeah, I think there's a difference between pushing the conversation and uh, bringing the conversation up as an opportunity to talk, for sure. I like, um, two things are coming up. One, it's kind of reminds me of, I talk about the dialectical thinking and distinguishing behaviors, which is distinguishing behaviors is when we can appreciate what we is different in our child than us, while at the same time reminding them of what's what we have in common. So we're not expecting them to be little mini me's of us, which we no one should do anyway, but you know, especially as a non-bio child. Um, but then also really finding those ways to connect and remind them of our similarities and things we really truly have in common. Um, it kind of goes with this as well. It's like in a way this story can be tied together, it can be stitched together. Um, the theme of it, it made you your family and there's pain, but there's resiliency and there's you know challenges you overcome. But then also it's important to recognize that there is uniqueness and your story of pain through your infertility journey is going to be different and is different than your child's story of pain and loss should there be any um, at any point in their lives because this is a whole, it goes across the whole lifespan. It, you may never be aware of it, you know? They may have grief and sadness and pain and it may be, something you're never fully aware of because they may be a, well into their adulthood and, and something they're working on personally, uh, you know, through their own and, and don't need to really feel like you need to be part of that. Um, so that they, that it can be both, right. It can be both stitched together and mirrored and it can also be very unique and special and it doesn't have to be our story isn't theirs and we don't have to try to superimpose it on top of their story. Um, but we can still re be relatable to each other, I guess. So, um, well, we'll move on if, unless anybody wants to add on anything. We'll move on to the next question. Um, the next question is about feeling connected. And, you know, when some children, like Vince mentioned, his children aren't interested, and that can be very common too. And then other children may feel a sense of not feeling connected. Um, and that can happen for various reasons. Um, and, you know, of course, there's so many variety. We don't, we won't go into all the different reasons that could happen. But, um, how do you feel if a child, for instance, were to say that they, there's certain things they can't see in themselves. So they miss out on those guideposts that where they can see how you, maybe they might look like you at a certain age or, um, that your talents and traits and skills that they may not possess, um, that they can't see that mirrored in you as the non-genetic parent. Um, and, or, and then even if they were to meet a half sibling or or genetic family members someday that they would see resemblances in those people, but they knew that they weren't their family. They weren't, you know, people they grew up with. How do you see, um, how do you see you kind of encouraging a sense of belonging or maybe trying to minimize any feelings of disconnection from your, from your family? Um, so I'll let you, oh, I didn't see whose hand went up first, but I think it was Alex. So go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, in our situation, we're in a little bit of a unique uh, place. And I've talked about this a lot, but um, obviously it's it's my uh, genetic link that's missing. And so it's my family that that would be uh, that what who would be talking about. Um, my little sister um, adopted two kids, does not plan to have any biological kids ever. Um, these kids are of a different race than us. They are very clearly not uh, my sister's biological children. Um, and so I think 
we're at a little bit of an advantage with this conversation, I think, because we're already, our family already looks different than most, um, you know, and her, her cousins are not going to look anything like uh, our family or, you know, their parents. Um, and so I think for us, that conversation of what defines a family is going to be a little bit easier to, to kind of be able to show her as she gets older. Um, I think she'll kind of always grow up knowing that some families look alike and some don't. Um, obviously, that's not going to answer, you know, all of her questions or, or longings um, by any means, but we're hoping that that's at least going to be um, somewhat of a benefit for us, just like I said, to, to show her that, um, you know, all families don't have to look exactly the same and, and ours definitely doesn't already. Yeah, I think that's true that they do feel like, okay, I have a cousin that also doesn't look like the family then. Yeah. They don't feel like quite alone as alone. Yeah. Sarah, what about you? I was, I was going to say that I, the most important thing to me is that we're honoring that that is their truth. Um, and that it's important that we're validating that that's the experience. I think that that's something that most people go through is we look to our families and say, who am I, who am I like and where did I come from? And, and that's how we build our sense of identity. And so we have to honor that there's this piece that may come up for them that would feel like it's missing. I know even as somebody who is um, genetically related to both of my parents that I felt like I didn't look like my dad and I didn't understand how it would be possible that he could be my father. And it was a very odd experience like connected to him. So I can almost, I, I can't wrap my mind around the, the severity of that, that, that children might go through, but I can at least honor it and understand it. I mean, I had a, I had a girlfriend to me say to me today that she had found um, she could never understand who she looked like in her family until she had found a picture of her father when he was in his early 20s and he had this you know crazy blonde curly hair like she has which nobody else in the family had and which he did not have by the time that you know she had been born and um, how validating it was for her to see that and that was in her genetic parent so I think that when we can see how important it is for those of us who do have that genetic link, it lends itself to recognizing that we cannot minimize how important it, it can be for people who don't have it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely great. And Becky, what about you? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything Sarah was saying there, really. Um, I think just from our own personal experience, um, we, so for example, my eldest Mila um, has crazy curly hair, which we absolutely love. And that can only have come from the donor. So we are almost kind of celebrating those individual um, parts of her. Um, and we will be really open with her that, yeah, that, that must have come from the donor's side. It won't stop her having any curiosity about it. Um, but one of the things that kind of when we were, going through the process is I was really, really keen that our donor conceived child would have a sibling um, from the same donor. And it was just something I really wanted, even to the point where I asked the clinic to see whether the donor would donate again if our frozen embryos didn't work. And that was so that they wouldn't be alone in their genetic wonderings and they would have a genetic link within the family. Um, so I have three girls now and they are all from the same um, egg donor. So yeah, I think that was just something that went through my head. I think earlier on without even really consciously realizing it, I, I kind of 
worried that they might feel almost disconnected from the family and, and may feel that they they don't necessarily belong 100 percent. but um yeah again it's just like Sarah said it's honoring their feelings and and listening to them and um yeah that's yeah that's good I think it does help to have a a sibling and certainly you know you can see them mirrored um and the similarities and um genetic trait um, mirroring in your sibling um Vince yes go ahead to build off of what Becky was sharing there about the curly hair and to, to go back to the donor conceived person's experience of feeling disconnected, I, I remember really touching time for each of, and we also have three daughters, each of our daughter's lives when they realized that they had brown eyes and daddy has blue eyes. And they asked each of them as they grew older, why don't I have blue eyes like daddy? Yeah. They did. Was it at different ages? At, at, you know, as each of them got to be about five years old, something like that, four or five, as they start to notice, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a very early uh, moment where they're beginning to look for their identity and they're noticing that they have something different and that they are not finding themselves mirrored in, you know, the people who who are rearing them. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the best that we can hope to do is should our children, you know, develop a passion to explore that, um, that we just support them in any way there. We're on the donor sibling registry, for example, but there have been no matches whatsoever. Um, And so then to that point, Becky was just making about um, having siblings so that they could see themselves in each other. That actually never occurred to me until just now. In fact, sometimes I'm prone to comment that we were so worried about genetic connection before we had children and that we thought that was reasonable because that's kind of how you define family, um, that now we're so unconcerned about it that I don't know why we didn't just pick three different donors. But I think you raise a really good point um, and a reason why we can be satisfied that we use the same donor. Uh, for all three, and that is that mirroring so they can see each other. Um, and then uh, I'm reminded of uh, of Gail, who uh, has an experience where there are so many donor siblings, and I'm kind of curious uh, if, you know, what Gail's experience is about, you know, the child seeing themselves or discovering others like them. Yes, I was thinking as everybody was talking about the mirroring, and absolutely, so my daughter has well, certainly um, over 100 siblings and the sperm bank has clarified, I think the last count there was 104, but really given they don't know themselves, it could be double that, um, we'll probably never know. But we have a shared Facebook group with about 30 children or the parents of the children and we catch up, we've met nine of them in Australia and I know there are about 23 so I'm not sure where the others are positioned um, but we catch up with two of them regularly and it is absolutely fascinating to see them together my daughter is slightly older she's nine the other two children are seven and five and she is exactly like a big sister to them in the way she behaves she herds them around um, they look up to her. It's it's quite fascinating to watch. 
and I can really see the value in the mirroring there. In fact, my daughter the other day, and we look at the photos of the other children as well, and we we do talk about catch-ups, which hasn't happened yet with certainly the ones from the US and Canada. We have, as I said, we've caught up with the ones in Australia. And she said to me the other day, oh, that, you know, that child looks like this other child. And so she's seeing it herself in these children, the similarities in their features, um, even in the way they talk, some of them. Um, so I can see that it's really valuable for her to shape and um, that ongoing mirroring, I guess it was a really important factor for her. Becky, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, just from my own personal perspective, it, I'm going to find it interesting to see how having three girls, how interested each of them are. And there may be that one is much more interested than the others. Um, so, yeah, I just think that will be an interesting dynamic moving forward. And and I know kind of th there is a difference in kind of the numbers of um, half siblings when you, you look at egg and sperm donation. Um, but I've kind of considered, to my, I've kind of thought to myself, should I find out now um, and do some genetic kind of research to see whether there are any out there or should I leave that to them? Um, and that's something kind of we've talked about. And I think we, we've come to the conclusion that look, if they want to find out more, then we will support them with it in the future. Um, but yeah, it was just a, an interesting discussion that me and my husband had around. Um, do you give them that information and find it out yourself or do you allow them to go out and find it with with your support becky if i could jump in here real quick there was something that uh, so Lori and i years ago had done 23 and me on a lark you know to get the health information and you know whatever and that was amusing and thankfully there were no you know terrifying surprises you know at least uh, in so much as these uh, direct to consumer genetic tests are accurate in their health predictions. But one thing we did last year was we asked the girls if they were interested in, you know, having their DNA tested. Um, and so they each did the 23andMe sample and we, we sent it in. And during that time, there was some a concern that my mother raised and she was very concerned about this. She said, what if you find out they're not all related to each other? What if you find out the lab made a mistake? I mean, stranger things have happened. And, you know, we had to sit down and think that through, you know, what uh, we talked that through with the girls. What would that mean to you if you discovered you were only a half sister to, to each other or something else? Now, as it turned out, the genetic results came back that they're all full sisters and they're all the daughters of uh, my wife. You know, there were no surprises, no lab mix ups, apparently. Um, but, you know, that whole idea of connection and the genetic testing piece, that was how that more or less played out. Uh, in our family. Thank you, Vince. That's really interesting just to hear that perspective. You're a few years on from where we are. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, thank you for sharing. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, and I just, I know we, we won't cover it in this today's um, call, but maybe in a call in the future, I'd love to go and to learn and talk more about Gail and her daughter's experience too, with all of the half siblings. So that's, wow, that's a whole nother whole nother topic. So, but for now we'll move on to the last question. You know, really I thought about you, I came across this and somewhere along the line of looking at different, just different perspectives and donor conception and um, where it came up the, the topic of if a sibling, a half sibling were to meet another half sibling later in life 
and or accidentally date uh, a half sibling because like in your case your you know your daughter has so many half siblings over a hundred you said you know that a lot of parents get re- are really afraid of that so this question has two parts one is what if they don't know their who their donor is and uh, donations are happening in the same geographic area and they may accidentally date um, a half sibling. That's a concern parents bring up with me. And the second question and piece of that is that it is common and can happen that half siblings have an att- attraction to each other, sexual attraction to each other if they meet as adults later in life. That doesn't mean they engage in any or act on it in any way. Um, but that sense sometimes can be bothersome to parents. So I wanted to kind of talk about those topics. Um, so Gail, I'll let you start. Yeah, this excuse me. This has been of um, quite concern to me for obvious reasons, and I even wrote a blog post about the chances. And I asked some friends who are maths um, brains about statistical likelihood of this happening, and of you know two of the children who would then be teens or adults meeting. And the statistic, statistically, it's actually quite low. However, from you know the voices of donor conceived people, that fact can be irrelevant because a lot of them say that they walk around looking at people. This is particularly where um, perhaps there's been anonymity involved or there are uh, multiple siblings. They're looking at people who they feel resemble themselves and think, I wonder if that's my brother or I wonder if that's my sister. So <clears throat> whether or not it's statistically probable um, is irrelevant. So that was a really interesting point for me. And, of course, I'm going to have to tell, say to my daughter that when she does become sexually active, she is, she is going to have to ask people about their conception story. And the, and the problem there is that some parents are still not telling their children. So that, for me, is a concern as well. And given I know that there is about a dozen children in Australia who haven't shown up yet, um, who haven't have chosen not to connect, then I know there are there are people out there who are related to her. And of course, there are many, many overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regard to the genetic sexual attraction, I've, I've done a bit of research on that as well, because, you know, that, that's part of it, that if you meet as an adult, <clears throat> now while this is called the Westermark effect, whereby when somebody, children grow up together, um, it desensitises them to a sexual attraction later. Uh, now, when you meet for the first time as an adult, that there can be this sexual attraction because we're, we're naturally connected. You know, there's this natural energetic connection from someone that you're genetically related to. So I don't think there's any particular research out there that supports this, but there is definitely quite a bit of anecdotal evidence out there where twins meet for the first time or parents and children meet for the first time. Um, I think there have even been marriages between parents and children. And it must be quite horrific for the people because everyone's telling them you can't do this. And for them, it just seems like a natural occurrence, um, a natural thing that's that's come up. So, but as I understand it, if you arrange... I think it occurs where there might be a sudden unplanned meeting, but if 
in instances where we can prepare for a, a reunion type meeting, then you know I think that genetic sexual attraction can be avoided. But the part that concerns me is where <clears throat> my daughter might meet a sibling unknowingly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I like I love how you said you know it's even though it's statistically unlikely that um, that they still think about it almost you know some pretty frequently and I don't know how often um, I guess it depends on the person but I do know that um, a book called Adoption: The Lifelong Search for Self it's by David Brzezinski and it's my favorite my favorite favorite adoption book because it's it's not written by adoptees it's written by researchers and it looks at development across the lifespan and needs of the and sort of the different issues that an adopted child faces and one of the thing that he says that always stuck out to me was he said a hundred percent of adoptees search um in their mind and when you said that i thought of that gail is that even if it's just a random thought of oh that stranger looks kind of like me wonder if i'm related um that could be as a, just a moment where they just think about it, you know, so it's kind of a, a search in a sense. And um, so that I think is, is an interesting thing. And then also just what you said about being um, desensitized is interesting. I, you know, growing up to a sibling and I think it's also important for kid half siblings that when they plan to meet a half sibling as an adult, if they are attracted sexually, that they not have feelings of shame about that and they not ha be alarmed and frightened by that feeling because it is like you said it's biochemical um, and like attracts like we know that um, it's very common for when we're finding our mate and our partner in life we we find someone who's similar to us in traits it's just kind of what it's human nature in other words so I think it's important to educate half siblings that are going through that at an older age not necessarily kids but um, that that can happen so yeah any other thoughts from the other parents out there? Yeah, I, I think there are lots of areas where psychosocial research is helpful uh, in informing and improving the way uh, we try to practice uh, family building through donor conception. And uh, I recommend that, you know, we all participate actively in those kinds of research efforts because, you know, we want to be able to help our children, uh, you know, live uh, well-adjusted uh, happy lives and, and accomplish their goals. And, you know, if these things are uh, challenges that they may face, then yeah, I'd love to know more about it. But it was a, a surprise to me when I read it on the top list. One thing that was really interesting to me just in, in knowing that this was a, a topic today was that one of the things that I had thought about when we were going through this process of choosing a donor was I had this fear you know, what if, you know, we know that our donor, I'm in Pennsylvania, and I know that our donors in Maryland were probably about, you know, two to three hours apart. And, um, you know, I wouldn't know geographically where her other donations have gone. So that the thought came to me. However, even though psychological evaluation was required for us, this was never a topic that was brought up to me by our doctor, by our clinical team, by in our psychological evaluation. And so when I knew that this was a topic today, even though that was something that I had thought about, the act, specifically the genetic sexual attraction was not something I had thought about. It had been more sort of a what if they meet my, you know, my son at the time, I didn't know it was my, going to be my son, but what if my child meets another 
one of their siblings mm -hmm. and they start dating and we don't know, but it had never, I didn't, as, as a relatively informed, educated person who chooses to be educated and I kind of go out of my way to make sure that I try to be, that was something that I had, that wasn't, that I didn't know. Um, and so of course it led me down my own path of researching and trying to understand. And I think it lends itself to how important it is that these are the conversations that are happening with people ahead of time. <laughs> that because I choose, because it's so important to me that I try to be as, as educated about these topics as I can so that I can answer them for him should they come up. Um, I can only imagine what it's like if the, if the resources weren't available to me. And so I just, it, it just, it lends itself to, to the importance of these being a part of the conversations that the medical community is having, having with people who are choosing to be donor um, recipients. Oh, and I couldn't agree more. And I would say that um, they don't know. They're not educated themselves on this issue. And it is a topic that's difficult. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable to talk about. Um, embarrassing for people to talk about. So, but again, even more important to talk about it because like you said, I mean, you want as parents be able to recognize that it's okay. The last thing you would want to do is go, oh my gosh, that's so freakish and weird. And I can't believe that you are feeling that way. What's wrong with it? You know, you don't want to, you wouldn't, none of you would, but you don't, anyone listening out there, if you know that this can happen, it is a biological, biochemical thing that can, is very real. So yeah, go ahead, Becky. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, very, again, similar to Sarah. I, was, I was quite shocked actually seeing that as a question. I thought, is that really a thing? Um, I'd never heard of it before. Um, but I think just it made me reflect on when we, part of our decision-making when we chose to go abroad to um, the Czech Republic. And I remember in my head thinking that I wanted some distance and it was more about the future and, and kind of wanting to make sure that there wasn't any sort of connections that we didn't know about I thought it was, it, that it was would be less likely I suppose um than having somebody down the road from where we live in in Nottingham so yeah I think it, it's just that it's that thinking beyond just the donor um it's thinking about these siblings and, and whether anybody else I mean somebody in the next town to us could have traveled out to Prague and used the same donor um but yeah I think it's just really really good that we're aware of these things I think Personally, I think they're very unlikely, particularly in the situation with, with the egg donor and, and where we had our um, donation. But I think as a parent, just to be aware that, that this can happen um, is just really important. Yeah, it is something that most people don't want to talk about or admit or share um, so I was really glad when I was kind of scouring different sites and areas and I saw that and Gail, I saw you had commented um, on it. And so I thought it was, yeah, a good thing to talk about and bring awareness to and not to worry people or to scare them or give them that weird feeling. It's just, uh, again, this is a biological kind of human nature type thing and it can be a shock to the person themselves. So you don't want them to feel badly and you want them to realize that that's human and they can prepare for it and if it happens they can go okay yeah that's a thing and not be shamed for it um so anyway yeah well that is it that concludes our um 
our session today a little longer, went a little longer than I expected, but it was so good. I mean, really, really so good. So I'm so grateful to everyone for this. And does anybody have anything that you'd like to say just before we wrap up? I sorry, I, I did want to say something now, and you can whether you put this in or not, um, it's absolutely fine. Um, so I just wanted to ask you because um, I know a lot of potential recipient parents may listen to this, and I know a lot of them have stumbled across certain sort of Facebook groups and things that have absolutely terrified them <laughs> in how some donor conceived people feel about their conception, and I think. And what we've all said today is we we said that openness is is really really key, and that's something I try and, and talk about, advocate, and and encourage. Um, but when you were kind of asking the questions, you you mentioned a lot of donor conceived people feel that, and I just wanted to ask the question around kind of do we know in terms of proportion of donor conceived adults people how many feel these extremes of, of views, and how many are kind of more comfortable and and so don't communicate as much I, I just was almost wondering in terms of the the what's the likelihood that someone's going to come across these sort of issues if they are open and for so things where they feel like um a commodity um or feel that they um their story isn't valued um that they have that disconnect um and I just wondered whether you knew of any research really where that has occurred in a family that has been totally open um, versus um, families where there have been secrets. And I might be asking a question that, that there isn't an answer to, um, but I just wanted to maybe have some context around things because I know how scary as a, as a recipient parent, um, when you desperately, desperately want to do what's right for your child and the best by your child. I, I, I just know how scary that can be. Well, I think also when you think of like feeling like a commodity, you know, I, I actually had that thought go through my mind and my parents were always open about adoption. And I, that thought about the price did go through my, my head. And I did have a time frame where I needed to contemplate that. I needed to consider that and understand that better. Now I, you know, you all know I'm a deep thinker and I'm, I'm somebody who likes to, you know, analyze these things deep. So there'll be a lot, many children that possibly won't go so deep into the thought process and want to understand how things work. The, the only thing that I can relate it to, and I did in my book too, is that um, about 15 to 20% of the population uh, is known to be highly sensitive, which is a natural trait, a normal trait found on the alleles of DNA. And that means that they are deeper thinkers. They like to analyze, they like to sort of reconcile different conflicting emotions and things. And so you might have this percentage of the population that turns out to also be donor conceived or adopted 15 to 20% that might also be curious. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they will go on to say, oh, I've contemplated this commodity issue and I actually feel like a commodity because I never felt like a commodity myself, but that doesn't mean I didn't think about it and I didn't wonder about it and try to understand it better. So there are questions that, you know, I never st stayed stuck in that feeling, but, but I certainly can understand it for certain. I can understand it. So I think I don't, I don't know the answer, but I do see Vince had his hand up. So maybe he's got some knowledge. <laughs> so. No, I, I just wanted to jump yeah. in real quick. Um, I mean, it could make the obvious point that it's going to be hard to do such research because it's hard yeah. to even know how many donor conceived people there are. And I think that's, um, 
that's something we want to see change, right? As we as we advocate toward an open uh, acknowledgement of uh, donor conception, it becomes more possible uh, for donor conceived people to speak up and share their voice. But I just wanted to point to, I'm pretty sure Olivia Montucci, who is one of the co-founders and former head of the Donor Conception Network there in the UK, Becky. I'm pretty sure she's blogged on this before, and she has um, an anecdotal uh, you know, gut reaction to how frequent this is because she encounters uh, this as well. I don't know that there's any better answer. I really like Jana's answer, but I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Olivia's work and that of the Donor Conception Network, and that uh, I do remember reading something Olivia wrote a while ago about this. Well, what I understand is that these things can happen throughout life, various changes in life as well. So our children may have no interest whatsoever and then or, or feelings about it and then there might be a trigger in their life. So it might be having their own children or it might be meeting a sibling or meeting the donor or anything like that. And then things can shift quite remarkably and that might, shift in a positive way or it might then start triggering these feelings of grief and everything that comes together with grief and anger, all the phases. Um, so that was really helpful to me to understand that while, although my child does have, has expressed various aspects of the grief process already, she's only nine, um, that while there are other people out there whose children have expressed no interest or no emotions around their conception story that that may occur at any stage in their life so just to be ready for that and to be um aware that it can happen i guess that's that was very helpful to me yeah and i, I know I, i'm not trying to ask a difficult question i think just to be clear i was more talking about um sort of feelings of resentment rather than curiosity because I, I kind of can see like anyone could have any of these sort of questions and, and things like that. But I think um, I just know that there's some of the things that people read out there um, can sound quite resentful and angry. And it's just kind of trying to understand that a bit further. I, Becky's question really resonated with me because it was certainly my experience that when I was trying to decide if this was a road that I wanted to go down that I, you know, Facebook groups for, um, specifically in my case for egg donor conceived, um, adults, uh, children who, of course, then who were adults, um, joining these groups was important to me so that I was able to get some sort of perspective. And I, I will be very honest that it scared me. Um, I was definitely one person who was very scared by um, some of the, the the fear and the anger and um, even resentment that I was seeing. And, and I was so afraid of adding to that world and wanting to make sure that in whatever way possible that if I did decide to go down this road that I was um, not doing it lightly and uh, was taking all of those things into consideration. And so I think, you know, Becky's question speaks to something else that, that we were talking about, which is that when, when we know how much fear we have walked through in order to make this, to make these decisions, to become recipients of um, donor, of, of donor gametes, that it allows us then the opportunity to not necessarily say, okay, it means that I'm not going to do it because it, 
th th this could be a possible reaction, you also may choose not to. But for those of us who have done it, it gives us the opportunity then to use that as the mirror for our children who are also then at some point possibly walking through that fear as well. And I think that that's what, that's part, I'm not sure, Becky, if that's what you were asking, but I think that's what I'm hearing from you is, is are we, by answering and talking about these things, also scaring people <laughs> um, away from it? Um, and that that's certainly, for, of course, for those of us who have done it, that I'm going, that there are, there is a part of me that would say, I'm certainly not saying that by answering these honestly, I'm telling you not to do it. Um, I'm so happy with my, with my choice personally, but that it gives us the opportunity to mirror it for our children, not that our again, not that our stories have to overlap for them, but that we can mirror, that we know what, we, we understand the, the fear that you walk, that, can, that, that people can walk through. Sorry, just to finish um, on that, because I, I just wanted to respond to Sarah, and, and yeah, I, I, it scared me as well, um, I think, seeing some of these things, but, but no, I don't want to say that we, I, I think it's really important that we as recipient parents talk about it, um, so that there are different voices in, in that conversation um, and so we can kind of talk about how we feel about that but also listen to that and I think they're really really important to hear some of the, the kind of the, the, the resentment and the anger so that we can again mirror that and understand that and, and kind of be prepared for any feelings like that um, but one of the reasons I asked the question was because recently within the Instagram community that I have built um, I asked uh, just a, a very quick poll in my stories around um, what, what's your biggest fear as a recipient parent and overwhelmingly the biggest fear that they had was will my child resent me for the decision I'm making um, and how my child would feel in the future so that's just I just wanted to kind of talk about that and and ask that question because I know if you are starting down the route of donor conception and you google these things and you are kind of led to some of these these views um that are quite prominent within certain groups what you don't also hear are the people who have been donor conceived who aren't really speaking out in that forum because they don't really have much to say about it in that in that sense um so yeah that's just kind of why i asked the question really yeah, and I think uh, really, ideally, what I would love to see is I would love to see Brodzinski and his colleagues write a book about donor conception, the way he wrote one about adoption, because he they this is what they do, Becky. They offer this perspective that is um, more neutral and objective, and is um, it talks about issues across the lifespan. So even though you know it will still discuss like challenges that. Um, adoptees would have, but not necessarily to the point that they would um, express it on, you know, for a public forum or platform, but still like even just tiny little, like smaller issues and, you know, things we haven't thought of. So um, I don't know, it might be a good book just even for donor conceived parents to pick up. Uh, it, some of it won't be relatable and, you know, because there are differences between adoption and donor conception, but some of it might give you that perspective of that when we're talking about challenges it's not going to be all or nothing there's going to be that middle ground i think that when you're afraid that you want some reassurances that if you do a certain thing that you're going to get a certain outcome and it's just not that easy um it's just a lot more complex than that um so and it's changes throughout the lifespan so kind of having more of a long-term adaptable flexible look 
at the issues and the complexities of them um, really helps families in the long run. So, well, thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. This was um, a lot to cover in, a, in an hour, so we've probably given our listeners plenty to think about. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram at Jana Rupnow LPC and Facebook. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share it with a friend if you like it. Have a great day. developmental developmentally normal um challenges i guess